going to happen? Nothing. Right. The worst I thing mean, that happens is it doesn't record and you have to do it all over again next time. Right. Exactly. <laughs> no, that's true. That's true. Well, hey, welcome to the Why Aren't You Famous podcast with Andrew Grimm and Ellen Cherry. All right. Um, the, you guys can't hear this, but there's theme music going on right now. Yes. And we're talking over that. And um, we're uh, in our third season. Right. And in this third season, we are going to be interviewing folks from the Baltimore region. Uh, talking about radical curiosity. Radical curiosity. Radical curiosity. <laughs> You're going to say it a couple radical. more times. <laughs> radical Wild curiosity. Cat. It just struck me as a topic about that I wanted to look into 2020 with a sense of optimism and the way that I, I don't know, like um, try to like produce optimism in myself is just to say, okay, this is a, this challenge is vexing me. How can I be curious about it? How can mm. I learn more from it? And so, um, so thank you for being open. Our guest today is Rain Alexander. I'm saying it correctly, right? Yes, okay. yes, yes. Rain Hi, Alexander. <laughs> thank you so much for coming yeah, over and talking with us. Um, Andrew and I both just read your book, Heretic to Housewife, which mm. came out last year. Yeah. It's a series of essays and one speech that you wrote, right? Was that a speech that the, the yeah? Poem? So the it's a few um, a few essays and uh, some performance monologues that I had done. So okay. I forget exactly how many of it each are in there. But. I prefer that term rather than speeches. Speeches sound so boring, like something that would be <laughs> but performance monologue. That yeah. is wonderful. Yeah. So. Um, you are also the lead singer and songwriter for one of my favorite bands in Baltimore, okay. Santa Labrada. I've seen yeah. you several times. Um, the only comment that I want to make about this, besides that you should go see Santa Labrada and that you're going to talk about some of your up- upcoming shows, is that almost every time I've seen you play, you have said you should have your favorite band be a local band because then you can see them a lot. Yeah. And I think that's... You're, you phrase it better than that, though. What do you usually say? It's something like that. You know, I'm always in the moment when I say it. But, you know, it's something that I really, you know, that clicked sometime in the 90s where, you know, I was following this one band and I was like, I get to see them. Like, I mean, then probably it was once a month, you know, but I'm like, I got to see them all the time. And I'm like, this is this must be what, you know, what deadheads might experience when they can actually just pick up and follow a band that they love so much and see them all the time, all the time, all the time. And, um, you know, that's the beautiful part about local music is that, you know, you get to know the musicians and, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. So local music, that's where it's at. <laughs> and also when I saw you, the last time I saw you perform, I just caught a couple of songs, which is at um, Rituals, which is a new location. It was the wind-up space for mm-hmm. a long time on North Avenue and now it's Rituals. I'm so glad that a, another performance space has taken over that. Oh, yeah. So we didn't lose that performance space. Yeah. And to see you there, um, you guys were had debuted a new ballad, mm. um, and it was amazing. And that was one of my additional favorite things is that you get to watch bands try out their new material, um, and it's exciting. I just I don't know. I just, yeah. I love that there's that spirit of that. I'm always trying to encourage people to to see local bands because I feel like there's a feeling sometimes that they're just like, well, I'll see them the next time because they're local. Right. Um, but if you actually thought about it as though this is a touring band and they're coming through again mm-hmm. in two months, yeah, support them. Yeah. And their money is staying in the city, too. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, you get to watch a performer grow. I mean, I saw, I remember seeing you soon after I moved to town. Oh, really? Um, and it was at Fletcher's. Oh, God. Oh, and, wow. Um, oh, God. Oh, oh, that would be a... And, 
I just remember your performance was just, I was so riveted by it. And I don't remember which song it was, but you had just, I think you maybe just put out the Ellen Cherry primer. Oh my God. You know, and I'm like, I snapped up a copy and I'm like, this is great. I'm really making my, making my hometown, you know, work for me. And I, I remember just saying something very gushy to you, like you're an amazing guitarist or something. And you're like, ah, and I don't know, it was good. And like, here we are all these years later. We're still doing it. It's yeah. the, it's the, what Andrew calls the war of attrition. It's the war of attrition, man. It's like if you can just outlast everyone. Absolutely. <laughs> that's just, our whole just goal. Keep showing up. I'm still here. That's, that's, that's all part of the hustle. <laughs> Absolutely. Fletcher's. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. That place. Mm. Right above, what was the place? Um, the Brass Monkey. Mm. Oh, that was down the street. That was down the street. It wasn't yeah. right above it. No, it was, it Old was one Baltimore block over. venues. Yeah, that was Alice, Anna, and Bond, I think. And uh, Brass Monkey was on uh, Eastern. Eastern and Bond. Somewhere around there. Oh, uh, the Brass Monkey. Oh, mm-hmm. um, man, that was the first time I ever got on stage and played. And, and like, they, we used the house mic. Oh. And and whenever I do sound for band, this is what I learned from that situation. It was like, A. What kind of terrible STI like, did you get from like, that, right? Did Sure Microphone come out with, like, a G.G. Allen Signature Series microphone? Because <laughs> that's what this smells like. It was it was the most horrifying thing, and I, I saw the sound guy go up there, and he had this little little spray can of Banaka, and was like, oh my god! And I was like, oh. <laughs> so ever since then, whenever I do sound for bands, I always bring a, a little little Listerine spritzer mm-hmm. to kind of like just in case, like you know, you see, like when I worked on Somebody's the window space, when I was like, sometimes I put this mic, they're like, oh, good lord, yeah, Ooh. yeah. <laughs> And then, like you know, a match. Yeah, and, you know. it'll force you to have good mic technique, though. Oh yeah, stay yeah. off the mic just a like, little bit. I'm definitely yeah. going to be an inch off yeah. that mic. <laughs> yeah. You don't know how strong that person's microbes are, and right. holding they're your clinging breath. on, right? right. Yeah. Absolutely. How long it's going to live outside the body? Anyhow, um, why don't you? Why don't you start? You, you want me to start? Yeah, sure. Oh my goodness. We're going to ask Rain about her book, Heretic okay. to Housewife. And the first question I have is, where can people get the book that we're talking about? Um, well, you can get it directly from the publisher, Neon Hemlock. And, um, you know, we're getting it into bookstores. We're a very, it's a very small press, a very new press. And so, you know, they're still working on getting it out into all the various bookstores. But if you are a bookstore, if you are a library, um, hit up Neon Hemlock Press and they can get you copies and, uh, or hit me up and I can help facilitate. Um, but you should be able to get it locally and, um, uh, Red Emma's definitely has it. Yes, New Red Emma's. bookstore, Carpe Librum. I'm going to do an event with them next week. What um, date? They're up on, um, it's on the 25th. Okay, we may not so have this up by, have by then. then but, but they'll have the books by that point. Good. Um, and uh, yeah, so, you know, we're, we're kind of doing this like one store by one store kind of a thing, you know, as we get the get the distribution of my book up but you know so if you want my book uh hit me up and we'll make sure we get you copies to you or your bookstore and briefly just to tell people the people that are listening about rain's book i mentioned before that it's a series of essays and you said performance monologues but it delves deeply into your life history as a person who has transitioned Mm -hmm. and so we're going to talk a little bit about that today but i didn't mean to interrupt andrew because i didn't ask you to say i I just wanted to make sure that people understood that the context of the book since they may not have read it yet oh okay yeah Yeah, they wouldn't be able to glean that from the conversation either (laughs) um so when i when i read the book um a couple things kind of stood out to me and and um reading it from um, a cisgendered male point of view, mm-hmm. like, because that's what I'm bringing to the book. And then, you know, reading about your experience, a couple things kind of jumped out. And the, and the first one was like, um, 
you look at that that first essay is all lowercase. It's um, it's you talking. Uh, at least, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I got the sense that this was a, a, from a, a child slash adult type of point of view. Yeah. And then at the end, there's this very kind and and positive, uh, matured adult voice, experienced voice that's looking back mm-hmm. and almost talking like, you know, both past tense and future tense as you're looking forward to those things. And I really, I, what struck me about those two things was that um, your book is, it's all showcasing, not showcasing, it's all centered around this idea of finding your voice or mm-hmm. finding your identity and looking at those things. And it was, I ha- I paused in my reading when I read about you saying, and I think this was in the first essay, but it was uh, being the only girl in a group of boys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That image for anybody who is, you know, from the cisgender perspective of people who, I mean, who might not understand, who might not be able to create the imagination to generate the empathy to understand what transitioning means or what it means to be a woman in a man's body. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was a very striking moment and it gave me a moment to pause. I mean, I like to think that I'm like, you know, semi-woke and whatever. Sure. But that was a very, like, within the first, like, three pages, you're just like, ah, oh, damn. <laughs> you know? And I hadn't thought about it that way. And so I'm not sure if I have a question other than, like, you know, great praise. But, like, that's a really, um, it's it's a really eye-opening way of, yeah. of understanding what it means to transition. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I feel like, you know, uh, finding finding my voice is definitely a huge part of that, what, what that book is uh, tracing, finding, finding the language to speak about things, mm-hmm. because we're always evolving. And, you know, and I think that uh, even when I was in that moment that you're talking about, it wasn't even really completely clear to me that I was really understanding myself as a girl in a a group of boys, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I knew that I was trans. I knew that, like, something was not right and I was being compelled to be in this situation, but I was outside of it, you know, because they were all talking about experiences that felt fundamentally alien to me, you know? How old were you when you've... Can I ask you that question? Like I self-diagnosed, you know, I, I found the word transsexualism, you know, when I was seven or eight in a medical dictionary. Interesting. And it immediately resonated, you know. So I'm like, okay, so this is what I am. Like, I've got to figure out how to take care of that. You know what I mean? Right. But I didn't have anybody to really talk to about it, you know. Cause yeah, had you from... ever had anybody in your life that presented or no. that... That you had seen because I feel like no. at the age that that all three of us are in Generation X that they're the idea of transsexualism was actually presented as transvestite which I oh, think yeah. it, it was just like sort of a caricature of people in in a mocking way that I remember as a child yeah. thinking like there's not a lot of empathy in that presentation that I'm seeing for the yeah. actual person that's experiencing this yeah and that what I've like come to understand is that there's absolutely no way that I could understand what it feels like to have what seems to me like feeling like your skin is on backwards. Like Definitely. Like Definitely. you are in the wrong place and time and actual existence. Mm-hmm. And you knew that at seven. You could feel yeah. that. 
And the cultural, the cultural milieu was such that, like, it was such a terrible joke, you know. And for me to be looking at those things and think, like, that's, I don't think that's how I'm going to turn out. But, like, I don't know how I'm, like, I don't know. I have no idea. Like, is that my future? Right. Um, because I didn't really feel, you know, I didn't feel like a transvestite at all, right? I was just like, I actually just want to feel comfortable in my skin, and I mm. don't. Um, and, uh, so, you know, it left me looking for a a lot, like I had the word and this is something that I've, I've really, you know, only come to understand in the last couple of years really is that even though it was really hard for me at the time, knowing that was such a gift because there's so many of us trans people, uh, like especially those of us that are actually medically transitioning who we don't find out the word, even now, with the internet and everything else, we don't really hear this until later in our lives. And mm-hmm. it's like, when you get this idea, that's when you're like, oh, that's actually something that's accessible to me. And even though it was a real weight to bear in my childhood, I knew it. And like, what a gift, right? right. What, a, what a gift. And, you know, and it's made me start to think about, and I think this goes to, um, you know, your, your, uh, how, how that, that notion of me being a girl in a room full of boys kind of resonated with me. Like all these years later, now that I'm able to look back on it, I was there with that knowledge. I knew why I didn't belong. Mm -hmm. I couldn't say anything about it. Um, and so in that regard, like, you know, I mean, what, what's more normative than, recognizing that you're a girl and you're not allowed to do a certain thing. I mean, like, that's right. what the way the culture just functions for girls anyway, right? Oh, the language is... So when I explain to people the things that we heard growing up, which are to boys especially, and how terrible it is, misogyny is for masculinity too, mm-hmm. that if you were told as a boy, stop crying like a girl, don't throw like a girl, not only is it negative towards girlhood too, as if those things are not being able to be done by girls or they're going to be done poorly by girls. You're yeah. not going to be able to do this because you are a girl. It's like the, it's very, it's very strange the way that we have been acculturated to approach gender. It's true. It's true. <laughs> and I think even then, like, I think once people realize that I didn't take it as an insult when people said that I like behave like a girl or I cried like a girl through like or whatever, like, I'm like, well, that's actually, that doesn't bother me. Like, Cause that's who I am. Cause that right. is who I am. And so that, you know, that kind of insult lost its power in a lot of ways. You know, it was still very, you know, trying time, but like, it was interesting that that, that shifted, you know. And you bit. said in your book that your mother, you felt that your, was it both your parents knew that they, you weren't going to be the son that they had thought you were going to be? Yeah. Or? And yeah. I mean, I don't know if they, I mean, I, I can't say, I mean, and they're both gone now, so we can't really have that conversation. Right. But, um, you know, um, they, I mean, they knew, whatever. They knew something was off, right? Right. Um, <laughs> but Well, and, and at some point I'm, I'm hoping, like, I'm listening to the language of how we talk about it, even how we talk about it, like, I, like when we say things like, we, we've, you know, feeling like something was wrong or something was off. At some point, that language is, is going to have to turn where it's like, no, I realized that something was on. Exactly. Like, I understood. Exactly. Like, it, it, and it, ha- it can be different. It's fine that it's different, but it's, you know, it's part of that, I don't know, dialogue that, or the, the, the lexicon that we have that we draw from, the vocabulary that we have about what's right and what's wrong and what's, 
male and what's female and what's you know all those as we shift even closer yeah. to non-binary language and thinking about it um it's just it's it's interesting to hear how that's that kind of plays out definitely um, definitely i think the other thing that i had in the in the essay i mean there's a lot i mean i really enjoyed the book i thought it was really good um i will recommend it to Thank some you. folks um there there's this line it's towards the end and it's just a real simple um question and i don't want to necessarily sound like krista tippett but i've been listening to krista tippett a lot on uh-huh. on being i can't get enough of that show it's, it's pretty dumb it's great um I'm a, yeah. i love it um yeah the uh the mary metier uh, the message to pauline uh-huh. um but at the at the end it's this really great question and it kind of plays with this idea of of curiosity and the question is i just want to make sure i got the question right. i should have memorized it but i didn't what else and i just this whole paragraph is really great but then you get to this you 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 say what else do we need to know mm. like what else do we need to know and their idea of curiosity and so i'm just you know what else do you need to know yeah like what else do as as a culture um as human beings and that question can never really be answered because there's always there's always more the, the next thing right there's always more and i yeah i like We've got this cultural, you know, we've got this, the, the, the cliche, you know, curiosity killed the cat. So this is why you shouldn't go out there. And another thing that I've always been really fascinated by, especially growing up in a very conservative Christian kind of way, um, is that there's this whole set of things that you know you don't want to know when you're inhabiting that space, mm-hmm. right? And you're like, oh, I don't want to know, like... Uh, there's, you know, all the, the sex stuff that's in R-rated movies. Like, I don't want to know anything about that. But that also means you have to kind of know what you don't want to know. Right. Right? A little bit about it. Like, you so have to know enough about to know, it. like, right. I don't want to know anything about that. Right? And I think that is such a fascinating intellectual move. And it's a little bit dishonest, right? Because yeah. it's like, I have to know enough to know that there's things out there that I want to know nothing about. Mm-hmm. But, like, Why? Why? Fear, yeah. fear. Yeah, there's right. fear. But you also think about the idea of the the empathy that we're we're talking about earlier, like how you generate that type of thing. And what if, you know, people who aren't paying attention to to someone who's transitioning and they don't understand it, well, that not under not that not under that not the inability to understand it is directly correlated to the unknowns that they are either afraid to to venture because mm-hmm. like well I don't want to be associated with it or I don't want that you know uh, is it going to happen to me it's like well I don't think it really works that way yeah. and you you would already it's not know really contagious you know it's like <laughs> you got to be kidding me right yeah so but that that whole known unknown part is so, which was I think the next chapter after that mm-hmm. um, it's such an important way of looking at it and to, to think like yeah we we should have a list of the unknowns. Mm-hmm. Not I, I, now we're starting to sound like who is that? Who is that guy that the, the Secretary of Defense? Uh, what's uh, his name? Rumsfeld. Yeah, Rumsfeld. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, because he had the un, there are known knowns and right. known unknowns and unknown unknowns, and then there was like a whole poetry thing that he yeah. did, yeah. or somebody put together. Right. So, anyhow, whatever. Uh, well, that's the reason why people uh, create religions is because of the unknown that they're trying to explain mm-hmm. or create rituals as well, mm-hmm. and yeah. And trying to tie yourself to that, something sort of mystical. Um, you said in the meditations chapter, which is the first one, the first essay in the book, that fear is not revolutionary. Mm-hmm. And the three of us just chatting here about the thing that you brought up about 
tying it back into the idea of radical curiosity is that fear is the thing that kills that to me. Mm. And I read that phrase and I thought that's actually one of the best things that I've read in a long time because being afraid prohibits it's a prophylactic against revolutionary radical ideas yeah it it stops it in its tracks and that's why it's so effective because people who want to make money off of us people who want to control us try to make us afraid of anything other than what they're selling yeah and so it it stifles all of the great things that are about having a a prefrontal cortex and being creative beings and having dreams and having this extra ability to have a theory of mind and and actually imagine I don't know what it's like to be either of you but I can imagine through the Mm -hmm. things that you describe you the way you describe your life to me um and that's why like in the the last couple of years where I felt like our our American culture has been soaked in just so much fear and negativity that I actually feel kind of the opposite, that there is this amazing revolutionary radical spirit of all of these stories that are starting to come out that the internet has made available to us in a way. And the key to unlocking it is just not quitting. (laughs) Right, right, absolutely. Not quitting. A, Mm -hmm. making sure that the people that are telling these stories have safety um, and energy and resources and the ability to do that because the because of um, the not quitting part, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and not dying or being killed part, um, because the, it it doesn't. I don't I don't subscribe to the superhero idea of it being like good versus evil. Sure, it's it's humankind versus itself in a way. Yeah, um, we're it's like we're trying to make this evolutionary leap into something that's more fluid, into something that's better, um, without the aid of. Um, machines and mm-hmm. like some people believe that we're going to reach the singularity and that we're going to merge fully with artificial intelligence and I don't know if oh, we're oh boy <laughs> yeah. which, I don't know which, if we're actually which has all been programmed by by white men yeah I mean like yeah that was in uh, was that in the article or was that we, we've been watching a, the documentary on artificial intelligence I had read um, an article on art, artificial intelligence um, and facial recognition uh-huh. and they they found that the facial recognition was excluding uh, African Americans because all the AI was programmed by white people. Right, right. So it was like, they were, right. It's like, well, you know, the AI is only as good as it's programmed by the people who pro. And what if they're, you know, racist jerks? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? Or even just the systemic racism that goes into it, like yeah. the thoughtlessness, yeah. right. is gonna impede the system a from working the way they want it to. Mm. And yet, I mean, like, whatever. It's ridiculous. It's just ridiculous that you know. We, we imagine we want to do progress, but only under a certain set of circumstances. I don't, mm-hmm. you know. Because I think it's, again, afraid, people are afraid to actually examine the discomfort that, it, and I say that word very specifically, the mm-hmm. discomfort that it might cause them if they had to change slightly. Absolutely. They may be, have a little bit less money. They may have a little bit less access, but that doesn't mean that they're not going to have no money or no access. It just means that there's going to be actual equity rather than this right. concept of like, a zero sum game for all of these resources. Yeah. And I don't want to get too far off into AI island. Um, oh, okay. But I would love to talk about your, um, you said, I think two or three times in your essays mm-hmm. that it was more difficult to come out as a witch than it was to come out as a transsexual person. Yeah. And so I'd love for you to talk just briefly about your, 
your um, evolution or however you like to describe it um, spiritually. they're, They're intertwined for me, which, you know, like this is this is just me with the benefit of you know years and years of experience now where you know um i i was raised in a mormon family and i knew very early on that that was not for me much in the same way that i knew that i wasn't really um you know the boy that my parents expected me to be that my church expected me to be and um you know, I gravitated very quickly towards polytheistic ideas and things like that. You know, as soon as I like could get my hands on these things, you know, I got, this is a good, um, I, uh, got my hands on Edith Hamilton's mythology. That was, (laughs) you know, I love that book. And you know, she was a Baltimorean. (laughs) Oh, I didn't know that. She lived on for a time. She lived on, I think cathedral street, not so far from where Meyerhoff is right now. So she was here. All the good things come to Baltimore eventually. Is I what totally I believe, agree. Right? And sooner or later, all the good people come to Baltimore. All so, roads leave here. Yeah, leave here. right. Um, and so when I found out that, I was like, "Oh my god, I've got to walk by just to see where she might have been," you know, because I think the house is no longer there. Um, but you know, like th- that was a real awakening for me in a lot right. of ways, and like, and to see like this, you know, the way that uh, you know, a polytheistic. Uh, presentation like empowers women as well you know and it like, shaped entire cultures that also led to incredible intellectual progress yeah um, Roman and Greek mythology Eritrean mythology that that you know all of that stuff is based on which yeah. eventually led to you know the Christian stories like uh, not exactly original stories right that they were right writing. go ahead right <laughs> so you know like th- that was always kind of part of the whatever the operating system you know a little bit you know some uh, moon worship and some goddess worship was really part of my college, you know, time, but, you know, still like, um, and I'm still really trying to find the ways to talk about this because I still feel like a crazy person if I do start talking about it because mm-hmm. it's such a, you know, solid and individual experience for me. Um, and I don't know that I always do need to tell everything about it because I don't want to be an expert, you know, I don't right. want to be, the, you know, I don't want, you know, uh, I just know how it works for me. You know how did I mean? you come to information? Because is the would you classify the spiritual practice as Wiccan, or would you say that it's just it's, it's not, more of an individualized? It's, it's an not. individual thing. I mean, you know, uh, when I go to like when I've gone into the hospital and they ask me for my religion, I'll usually say Wiccan just to be like easy about you know just yeah. like put put that down and to make it a data um, point that somebody yeah. records that yeah. there's like okay if more people are identifying absolutely as spiritual practice yeah but that's not really the you know tradition that i follow you know it's a very you know it's a very intuitive kind of practice for me you know and it involves tarot it involves i was gonna say you know, i've been watching you on social media for the last couple of years talk about tarot readings mm-hmm. and i've always been fascinated by the concept of like the the meditative aspect of that yeah, and I've read, I mean, I've read tarot for 20 years, you know. Oh, cool. Uh, but I kept it very quiet, you know. And, um, you know, it was just a couple of years ago as I was beginning to come come to this understanding. And that's where I got this revelation, like, oh, it is actually, it has been harder for me to talk about these things because it does feel so personal and so, um, you know, uh, just it, it feels electric for me to think about these things. And like, and I still don't always have all the language, you know, I'm not sure about all the language. Um, and, uh, but, you know, I was like, is, is this going to be a weird thing if I decide I can like come out and let people know that I'm actually able to do this? But I, I was in a cash 
crunch. You know, I needed to raise some money. (laughs) And I was like, well, maybe I can do this and maybe I can just like get a little like a little bump because of just the sheer shock of me coming out of the closet about this, you know, and I'll just do some cheap readings for people. And like this, I'll just like, I'll come out that way. And I did that on social media. And like the very first day, you know, I had like, by the, by, by the end of the first day, I had like five or six readings booked. Wow. You know what I mean? And I'm like, okay, well that, that solves my immediate, you know, my immediate cash panic, you know, which is good. But then it also is like, all right, now I get to like, see how it is to like read for, you know, to, for really just read from random, random people. Cause I had read for friends, you know, and I'd read for myself for so long. Yeah. Um, but I'm like, all right, I think I'm ready to do this. And it's it, just doing the tarot readings has been so, I love doing it. I love talking with people about what the cards are saying, you know. And it's an opening for a conversation. It's a therapy. I've found it to be a therapeutic practice. And to speak to what you're talking about, your individualistic approach to your spirituality, I've I have always felt that way, that it was very confusing to me to participate uh, in the Catholic religion because it was, first of all, very rule-bound in mm-hmm. my experience of it, very rule-bound, um, which appealed to me as a participation, as I was participating fully in the patriarchy mm-hmm. as a child, as a female child in Plano, yeah. Texas, that I was just like, this makes sense because it feels comfortable because yeah. it's so familiar to follow more rules made primarily by men, Yeah, um, that the idea of an individualized spirituality and spiritual practice um, coming through understanding tarot or identifying as a witch is like, I think one of the most valid things that I've heard in a while is that that's how I feel most religions should be practiced. Mm-hmm. And that you're, um, I started a, a recovery program two years ago where I was introduced to the 12 steps and that was very problematic for me because there's a lot of mention of God. Mm-hmm. And then the program I'm in actually says God as we understood God. Um, yeah. But it's still using that word, which for a lot of us is very loaded. Yeah, um, Very masculine, um, feels oppressive, feels rule bound, feels accusatory. And so I started naming, trying to connect with the higher power concept by naming it the universal hum. Mm-hmm. I'm a musician. Everything is about sound vibration for me and the idea of us at an atomic structure or an atomic level just as vibrating atoms made sense and that there was this universal connection to the very beginning of time by this hum and that I could yeah. I could request that the universal hum not do things for me, but I could actually try to establish a personal relationship with something early mm-hmm. at an atomic level. And by early, I mean like ancient, yeah. that I could call the atoms in me could call back to something that far back um, to, to also recognize my, is the right word, temporality? My temporariness? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My ephemeral, ephemeral, yeah. Nature, my ephemeral of... nature of this physical person right. that it's going to eventually not be vibrating this in this cohesive manner anymore it'll have become something else um so that is really a beautiful way i think to describe your understanding of your spirituality in the context of of that word and i i just feel it's one of those other also one of those words that the more we talk about the word which people take the power back from to it absolutely because it has been co-opted by um, people who mean it to be persecutorial and yeah. are using it as a weapon that, and comparing it to something terrible that happened in American history 
specifically, mostly specifically to a lot of women. Yeah, there were some, absolutely. Some men, but absolutely. there were some women that were persecuted for allegedly being something that they thought was fearful and bad. Yeah. And just the lack of curiosity really bums me out. Right. Like, yeah, no, like, it's real. It's real. And I think, you know, there's so much, there's just so much unknown and delving into it is scary and exciting. I mean, like it should be exciting yeah. and something that, that drives us. And I mean, I think the thing that really roots all of this for me is that this is the by the, the means by which I became to understand myself as a natural person, yeah. you know, um, my whole life, I had this medical understanding of what I was thanks to this book that I discovered and like the, the subsequent reading. But like, I imagined myself as outside of nature for so long. Oh, interesting. Right. And like, I was just like, I'm not natural. Um, you know, I could go on at length about like feeling the, alien, the, the, you know, the, the, the things that, that, that led to this, um, the things that I was living with, but I'm like, I, I just felt for years and years and years, I'm just outside of it. I'm only going to be able to find uh, comfort through medical intervention, which is fine, you know, and it's been great. And um, if you're looking for it, you should absolutely go for it, um, you know. But at the same time, it was going through the spiritual practice that made me understand, like, oh, this is actually very much natural that this happens and it's happened in every civilization that's ever existed it's just a you know a human condition you know people are living in between in some way shape or form mm -hmm. the way the cultural culture deals with it is always going to be very different but you know going back to those uh you know those greek um situations you know those those uh, those polytheistic greek societies there were plenty of, uh, you know, tr basically trans priestesses, right? Mm -hmm. Who were like engaged in, in being an oracle for this goddess or that goddess. And uh, I mean, the history is there, you know what I mean? So I could have been one of them at a different point in my life, right? Or a different point in, in history, uh, given the same circumstances that I actually Yeah, if people look back, they with. would see that there are so many stories about the idea of beings transforming into other things to manage the situations that yeah. they were into, into other animals, into other genders, Absolutely. into like, and to me, that's a beautiful thing mm -hmm. because it's, transformation is happening to all of us whether we like it or if we're lucky yeah. enough to age yeah absolutely. i mean aging is a transformation of like i don't resemble the person i was 44 years ago and absolutely. the person i'm hopefully going to be in 44 years from now um to have that sort of acceptance of of change mm -hmm. is what i perceive you have by nature of the person that you were born into being had to accept really early on at the age of seven that your mm -hmm. life was going to be about evolving or perishing. Yeah. Like you accepted that really, really early and at a, a vulnerable time when I think a lot of people would not have been able to handle it. And that's one of the things that I feel like is really important for people to understand is that changing is requires incredible courage and bravery yeah. and a deep acceptance of yourself in a culture that would prefer that you do not accept mm -hmm, anything other than like two love stories and right. that's it right. it's it's and that's what makes me so excited about living now because i feel like if i lived 100 years ago the stories that i'm interested in and the experiences i'm interested in for myself 
would have been even more difficult to have or would have resulted in me being persecuted or dying or it's so I feel an optimism about that yeah and I hope that you know other people start to feel that way too because I think about like my nieces and nephews are growing up in this world where if we can give them the tools to ignore what somebody is trying to sell them Mm -hmm. there can be a lot of information out there on the internet and in the world for them to absorb or they can understand that they could be accepted earlier absolutely and they can be younger and find comfort and community and i don't know that stuff is amazing absolutely um you were when we were talking about um spiritual practice one of your essays um, introduced me to a new artist that I had, not, or an artist that I had not heard of before, Pauline Paulina Peavy, mm-hmm. um, who lived for eighty-seven years during the twentieth century. She saw incredible change. Um, one of the reasons she fascinated me is that you also additionally mentioned um, another artist who I was not aware of until last year at the Guggenheim, Hilma mm-hmm. of Clint. Yeah, I saw um, that too. Yeah, and I've. I've heard about plenty of men spiritualists and spiritualist artists and, and men who experimented with talking to the afterlife. There was one of my favorites is this guy named, um, I guess I can't say he's my favorite if I can't remember his name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, he His son did the sculpture at the AVAM. It's called Strings. It's a huge violin with feet. Oh. Um, Dr. Everymore. Mm-hmm. And his, his name was Dr. Every. He's, I think he's passed away, but in Baraboo, Wisconsin, he used to be in salvage and he bought this huge salvage yard and he believed that he could build this machine called the Forevertron. Mm-hmm. And it's this massive, like 300 feet wide, huge sculpture made out of old, um, like tractors and trailers and stuff like that. That's just my tea thing. Yeah. You can, <laughs> right, um, that, um, he believed that when he died, he was going to have his um, ashes put in, I believe this is the story, into the top of it, shot into space, and then he built a receptacle for his wife to sit in so that he could send communications back and that she could receive them hmm. after his death. Um, so I've been there twice. His son is also one of the, um, as a sculptor, but there are these amazing like, whimsical sculptures made out of basically industrial trash. Uh-huh. And I... I remember reading about the guy who was in the JPL, the Jet Propulsion Lab, who um, was a spiritualist as well, but in the Aleister Crowley kind of mode. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of like the male presence in that, which yeah. is so interesting to me because it seems like my I'm drawn more to the female sense of the spirit of like you have to be a receiver for that. Yeah. And the female body is built for receiving. And it's just like that to me was fascinating to to learn about Helmhoff Clint and now to learn about Paulina Peavy, yeah. who also believed the importance in not only her life and spiritual practice, but in her artistic practice of trying to contact people in other universes or spirits in other universes or yeah. thinking about the multiverse and the, the invisible universe and being curious about that. Did you know about Paulina Peavy before you gave that performance monologue? I didn't. Well, um, I had just been introduced to her. Um, you know, I had a friend who is a curator at the Greater Reston Arts, um, Greater Reston, uh, I'm just, I'm, It's the Art Center down there. Art Center yeah. in They Reston. built a whole, like, um, complex around that, yeah. Yeah. You'll think um, of it. Yeah, it's just... We should know it, but... We're I, know, I know the... I know, it's, it's called Grace, you know, so the Great, Greater Reston Arts Center, um, and uh, the curator, had, they had just brought in uh, this uh, retrospective of Paula P- Paulina Peavy's work. 
And this was its second show. It had been shown in New York previously. And uh, she's like, I would love you to come in and do an artist response to this oh, cool. exhibit. And um, I'm like, I have no idea who you're talking about, but let me look at it and get back to you. And it, it took me like five minutes of Googling just to be like, yes, absolutely. You yeah. know, because this is a woman who, uh, you know, trained, uh, you know, went to what became CalArts in the 20s. Yeah. Which, I mean, just that alone, a woman going to CalArts in the 20s, like, oh, my God. Um and, uh, you know, ended up being commissioned to make this this mural that was up at the World's Fair in San Francisco in the 30s. Um, and then threw that whole thing away because she was visited by a, um, you know, an alien named Lacamo, um, who then became a co-author of all the rest of her paintings for the rest of her life. And she lived like the entire 20th century. Yeah. And... Um, you know, Lacamo's basic message was, you know, you humans are doomed for so many reasons. But like one of the key things is that your sexual dimorphism, breaking into male and female is the thing that's going to undo you. Interesting. And so then I'm like, okay, this is why the curator was like, okay, you want to, um, you know, you, you want me to come in and talk about this. So I did. And, um, you know, I mean, her, you should go and everybody should go and look her up, you know, uh, if you have a gallery, bring her show to you. It's really, it's, it's, it's an amazing uh, body of work, a very small body of work because a lot of it was destroyed, you know. Um, and she personally, I read in your essay that she destroyed her work. Like yeah, that was she would destroy her, her own work. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, just, you know, the way the time works. But um, yeah, you know, and, and all of this uh, amazing geometric work that she did mm-hmm. is very much in, in keeping with, uh, with the work that Hilma Off Clint was doing as well. So, and I got to go up to the Guggenheim and see that as well, of course. That exhibit was incredible. It was so amazing. And I love the way that they also, because we went from, did we go from bottom to top? I think the way that you, and I think maybe they curated it for you to start at the top and then go to the bottom to end with the the birth and rebirth paintings, the Mm -hmm. huge 10 foot tall ones. But we started there and walked up and kind of went backwards through her, her career and then came back down. And it was incredible for me personally just because I've been doing these meditative drawings for my recovery mm-hmm. and there was a circular drawing that I have been doing that I realized when I found a diary from 20 years ago that I've actually been drawing this one drawing mm. for about 20 years and sort of un- not really conscious of it and then I saw a similar one in her painting and I uh-huh. thought this is I mean it's not like an unusual symbol but it still was like it was very powerful for me to feel connected to her and then when I was looking at Paulina's um work on the internet after I got introduced to your essay I just thought here's another it's I wouldn't say like sensing the the feminine and masculine in there but she uses what I would consider typically masculine sharp lines Mm -hmm. but then it's underlaid with this foundation of um openness and landscape and these watercolors that are that are because I don't have the lexicon for it feeling very feminine to me yeah and that dimorphism that you talk about is just fascinating there is actually a isn't there a Greek god who presents as two genders as well I can't remember the name yeah I mean there's 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 a few in the in in there but you know I mean there's the hermaphroditus you know was the was one of the key ones but you know there's also the the story of Tiresias that's what I'm thinking of that who Um, transitioned to female and and then then went back you know and said everyone should be female because it's amazing (laughs) yeah yeah 
<laughs> I was like, I remember reading that years and years ago, probably when I was reading it, Edith Hamilton and thinking like, yeah, of course, like I've never not wanted to be female, even in the times when I've felt that it has diminished me because I haven't had as much opportunity or I've been called a mean thing. And so that's me too. <laughs> right. And that's good. I like, I, I feel that what that coming through your book in such a powerful way that why would anyone want to deny the opportunity to a person to fully express that if that's how strongly you feel yeah. about being what you I think you said that very eloquently natural person mm-hmm. to find the natural person in yourself yeah it's the other thing that you just mentioned and talked about a few minutes ago was that a lot of these processes take a really long time and it, it just I also feel like the thing that I want to go into the future with is just the sense of gentle patience mm-hmm. because um everything take like we live these short little lives that are typically unfortunately less than 100 years yeah and the earth is 4.5 billion years and to the earth we're absolutely it's nothing the the idea of time is just it doesn't even exist an impulse right Right. and it feel life feels long to me but i also feel that there's a lot of pressure to figure things out quickly Mm mm-hmm and I don't think you can really actually figure things out. I think really, truly to understand and accept, it takes a really long time. Yeah. And so when when you talk about like knowing that you were, that transsexualism described you at seven, the way, how powerfully you felt, referring to it as your girlhood and knowing in your mind and not being able to fully express that until, to outwardly express that. I guess I shouldn't say fully, I don't want to put words in your mouth, sure. but to outwardly express that for decades past that, mm-hmm. the amount of patience you have to have to get to this point where you are now. And also, we haven't even touched upon the fact that like um, you've gone through transitional surgeries as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that takes a long time because you have to go through the healing process and also the expense and yeah, the fundraising, saving, <laughs> saving money for it, right? Yeah, to yeah. do something like that. Yeah, from beginning to end, how long did that? Do you mind talking about? No, that? definitely not. So, how long did that process take for you? Well, it felt like a million years. Yeah, um, and you know, and it's so funny because you know, if we say like I figured out that I was you know at seven, you know, right. and like living with this weight. It was only another 10 years before somebody found out my secret, you know, because they read in my diary, right? Oh. This was somebody, no, it was yeah. fine. It was good. Okay. It was a good thing. <laughs> but like, you know, it was somebody I think that, that was a huge betrayal, but if it was okay for you, then. <laughs> I was dating somebody who was definitely a snoop, you know, yeah. but I'm so grateful that she was in so many ways because she was so open and, you know, and like uncharacteristic for the time. This is 1987. Right. Was you know, she, your girlfriend in college? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, in the book. It's in yeah, the book. I talk yeah. about her and, you know, she was like, yeah, sure, let's figure this out you know and so she was very like instrumental in those those early days but like so and I think about like when did I really start to transition you know in many ways it was when I was seven you know or like even earlier when I started to get the the idea that like I was gonna grow up to be a woman you know um but I finally came out to everybody you know I was like this is I'm changing my name and this is who I'm gonna be I was 23 so this is 1992 Um, on my 23rd birthday is when I'm like, this is the day. As of today is when, you know, you all have to get with the program um, or you're off the show, <laughs> right? We're recasting. Yeah, as, you know. exactly. And, um, you know, and began the long process of trying to like access things, mm-hmm. you know, and I mean, but the thing is, even in my teens, I was like passing as a girl 
I was mistaken for a girl all the time. Interesting. On the phone, in person, you know, the first time I ever got harassed by somebody driving by me on the street, um, I was called a bull dyke. You know, I was in my teens, right? So, like, it was, like, always this weird, you know, existence. Um, so that when I finally came out, most a lot of people were just like, yeah, sure, fine, okay. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Sure. And, uh, you know, and it was still, like, another, like, four or five years before I was able to access hormones and, you know, all the, the medical stuff, you know. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I didn't really, I wasn't able to be in a position to afford uh, any of the surgeries until just a couple of years ago. Wow. So, you know, um, I was, uh, 47 when I had my vaginoplasty, 46 when I got my breast augmentation. So which one did you do first? Do you mind the me breast asking? augmentation? And then how long did that take to recover from? Just not very long, a couple months. And then va- vagina, vagioplasty, I'm sure it takes longer too because you, I, um, I had a friend who had unfortunately went through rectal cancer and mm. was telling me about the use of dilators. Yeah. Um, and so I'm sure you have to use that as part of the rehabilitation too. Like, so you're healing, you're using vaginal di- mm-hmm. dilators during that process. How long yeah. is that process? Well, um, again, yeah, that's one of those like fuzzy things, you know? I, I mean, mean I was, um, body. yeah, I was, um, out of the hospital in five days and then I was in, um, you know, in basically a recovery, like staying with a friend, you know, for another three weeks. I did, it was up in New York. Um, so I, I was gone from my home in Baltimore for a month, a month, you know, before I came back. And even then, like, it was still hard to walk for quite a while. Like I wasn't really, and every time I thought like, oh, I'm feeling like I'm back at normal again, I was still like, I'm probably actually only about 65%, you know? Um, it probably took me about a year to really feel completely like that I was, I had my stamina back and, you know, that, that sort of a thing. Um, which I think was probably a function of age as well. You know, I think if I was younger, maybe I would have been back on my feet a little quicker. Um, but you know, um, I'm still, I I still have to use a vaginal dilator every so often, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, right at the beginning, it was like, you've got to do it like X number of times a day for 15 minutes and, you know, just to make sure that the healing goes properly. And, you know, the results were great. You know, I got really lucky. I found a fantastic surgeon and, uh, you know, in many ways, I'm glad that I had to wait as long as I did because the technology is so much better than it used to be. I'm sure. You know, and, uh, you know, I got a robot urologist or a urology robot to help with things up there. So like the healing was faster. I didn't have to have revisions, you know, all these sorts of things are that, you know, a lot of other trans women have had to deal with. So thank you for sharing all of that. Absolutely. I think that there's a lot. I personally have curiosity about that because I've always been interested in medical things mm-hmm. as well and just like the body has always fascinated me body work and understanding just what we look like on the inside as well um, yeah. names of bones and muscles but the the concept of radically altering your body is is really fascinating to me because the the purpose of it is to make in my I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, that you're reversing that uncomfortable skin. The inside skin is becoming out. Um, The person that you are not, like you said, that's such a beautiful phrase. Um, I'm going to totally bite that. Natural person, becoming a natural person. Because every person deserves to feel that way in their body. Um, And 
that's just not the way that nature works sometimes yeah. you know like we you get we get born into the bodies we get born into we don't necessarily get to choose like oh i wanted this genetic history or mm-hmm. i wanted to be born with this type of different ability or or even different or even a gender that is not who i truly am it's yeah. just um it's amazing and i really appreciate how open you are about talking about it um it's incredible. And I also love that you talk about it on stage and you talk about it very importantly in one of the best delivery devices for information there exists, which is song. Yeah. <laughs> to talk about it and to circle us back since we're, we're wrapping up pretty soon. Um, when I heard last year, you guys performed a show that I came to see at Metro Gallery. Mm-hmm. And when you sang Dead Name, the passion with which you, your, you and your band performed that song um, is just kind of was transformative for me because I think I understood a little bit of what you're going through and we're friends and friendly, but I'm not necessarily a close friend. Mm -hmm. And I'd seen posts you had made on social media, um, about your transformation, your transition and to hear you describe it in music and song. It just made so much sense to me because I thought I understand that. Why would you want to be referred by something that you are no longer, that name yeah. is gone. That person is not like disappeared from the earth, but it's been, it's so distant from you. And then reading your book and understanding that it's even more distant than I thought because mm-hmm. that person was a six year old. Yeah. The seven year old is rain. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's so, you know, uh, there was a, there was a time when I was doing a lot of workshops, you know, going to university classes and talking about what it's like to be trans and kind of doing like, you know, like the nice freak show kind of a thing, right? You know, where I'm like, here's an exotic situation. But, you know, I, as, as I did those things, I realized like there's really not that much different, you know, like this isn't that exotic. Like it's just like a circumstance I had to deal with. This is something that a lot of people can actually relate to. There's so many aspects of it. Um, Naming, you know, naming myself was a huge thing. And I think that, um, you know, everybody should have that opportunity to really determine what their name should be. It's like self-determination. Absolutely. Like this is what I, the circumstances I was given but these are the ones that I choose. Yeah. And what do we what do we have to do as other people besides that person except for support that decision? Yeah. And say it. So I think we're gonna wrap up um because we're trying to be better this season about <laughs> not rambling, right? <laughs> so thank you so much to Rain Alexander for visiting um, my studio and being with us, me, I'm Ellen Cherry, my co-host is Andrew Grimm. That's me. Um, so I'm going to say you can find stuff about me at ellencherry.com. You can find stuff about Andrew at junestar.com. Where can we find out what's going on with you, a website address, and also what's coming up in February that people should come see you? Sure. Well, my website is rain.com, R-A-H-N-E.com. Uh, so you can go and find out everything that I'm doing there. Um, in the near future, I've got a couple of gigs with Santa Labrada. Um, we've got one February 1st at Slash Run in D.C., which is going to be very exciting. Um, and then February 22nd, we're going to be at Auto Bar. Um, that's going to be an all-local show with F-City and Ginger Witch and uh, the Selkies. Oh, cool. So that'll be a lot of fun. And uh you know, um, oh, and I've got a book event. Um, um, I've got another literary event coming up uh, February 9th, February 8th, 
I'm sorry, February 8th, I will be at Bird in Hand um, talking with uh, my friend Lewis Hughes, who's a longtime Baltimore LGBTQ activist, um, uh, really foundational in helping create the GLCCB and the... Um, uh, Chase Brexton, a lot of things like that. Like he's been around a long time. Um, he was part of a museum exhibit I did a couple years ago, and so I wrote an article about him for this journal called On Curating. We're going to have a little publication party for that and talk with him um, at Bird in Hand. So that'll be February 8th. And all of that's on your website? All of it's on my website. Okay, so go to rahne.com and you can find more information about Rain. Yeah. Thank you so much for being Thank so you. open. Thank you. And for um, giving us this wonderful book to read and to think about. Thank Appreciate you so much. It. Bye. See ya.